All right, good morning. Missed you last week. I, I, I want to begin by saying thank you to Perry for filling in on very short notice. And uh, he was outstanding, outstanding job, Perry. Thank you for leading us through those chapters, 15 and 16. Um, I won't say what happened to me, but I was not well, and I'm uh, 51% better, so I'm happy to be back. Um, we're going to look at a, a, at least one chapter today and maybe two. Um, we're going to look at chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, and we're coming down to the end of it. And I just every week think about um, spending all these hours in the book of Revelation and then trying to stand here before you and know what to explain and know what to point you to, which is the blessing of being in the book of Revelation. And that's on my heart today. I want to explain certain things, and I want to point you to the blessing. There is a narrative of the book of Revelation, and we should not forget what one of its primary messages is to prepare the church for the end of the age, a time of great trial and tribulation, and to prepare the church for the certainty of seeing Jesus either through our death or through his return. And so there was a verse in chapter 16, which I'd like to put on the screen, which is read in your Bibles because it's the words of Jesus who, in a parenthetic way, inserted in the book of Revelation chapter 16, says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. I, you won't see me. You, you, won't, you won't know it's coming. I'm coming like a thief. And blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen to be exposed. Are you ready for the Lord's return? Like if he came today, would there be any sense of shame or unpreparedness or I wish I had, that's the message here in chapter 16. Behold, I'm coming. You should stay awake, keep your clothes on, you know, be dressed, be, be ready. Don't be in a delinquent state of mind or life and you want to be found by the Lord when he returns, being faithful to him. This is a thread throughout the book of Revelation. It's dropped in in chapter 16, and I'm going to try to drive this idea home as we look at chapters 17 and 18 again today. But I, I just wanted to reach back and say this, this is one of the great messages. I want to do one other thing with you this morning, too, is because... We've now been many weeks in the book of Revelation, and if I were to give you a quiz and sort of go back and say, can you remember all of the things, you, how would you do? It's, and it's hard to put it all in a, in a frame, so I'm going to give it to you a frame in three points that I saw this week, which I thought was very helpful 
And it's a frame that understands the whole sweep of the book of Revelation in three sections. <clears throat> I mean, many people have done it in many different ways, but this is one that I think will help you. Number one is that God speaks in the book of Revelation in chapters one through three to the church in the city. So you'll go back to chapters one, there's a vision of Jesus in chapter one, and then in chapters two and three, there are seven letters to the seven churches. And it's Jesus speaking to the church in the city, in Pergama, Philadelphia, Thyatira, all of the seven cities, Jesus is speaking to the church. Here's what you should do. Here's, where you're, here's how you're doing. Here's how you're falling short. Here's what you need to pay attention to. Behold, I'm coming. And so Jesus, in chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation, speaks to the church in the city. The second section goes from chapter 4 through chapter 18, and God judges the great city called Babylon. It's a general title for all of the section of 4 through 18 where there are the judgments of God in growing measure, and God is judging the great city. We see that phrase over and over again. Well, what is the great city? The great city is what we're going to look at this morning. It's called Babylon. It's referred to in some very unflattering language, which you need to prepare yourself for, which we'll get to in just a moment. But God is judging the great city in chapters 4 through 18, and then in chapters 19 through 20, generally, God redeems the holy city, and the new Jerusalem comes. And if you're thinking, how does the book end, there's a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and God has redeemed and extinguished evil through the judgments. And that's just one way to think of the flow of the book of Revelation in a very fast snapshot that may help. Does it help? Yeah, it does. It does. Take that medicine. It's good. Okay, the, what's the theme here? City. W where we live. And we've argued over and over again that the book of Revelation is not so much, I don't think, was never really in John's mind to create an eschatological chart of timelines and dates for every specific thing. The book of Revelation is a call to be faithful to the end. It's a call to discipleship. It's a call to be a follower of Jesus no matter what city you're in. And I think the book of Revelation again and again portrays a question that I want you to be able to answer today, to which city is your heart oriented? To the great city Babylon or to the new Jerusalem that's coming? We haven't got there yet, but to the prostitute or to the bride? To the beast or to Christ? The question in the flow of Revelation is, where is your heart oriented? And chapter 17 is going to force us into this choice. You resist Babylon and follow the Lamb, or you follow the beast and you suffer defeat. 
That's the message of 17 and 18. Now, chapter 17 and 18 are understood as the extension of the seventh bowl judgment at the end of chapter 16. With that as enough background, let's go to chapter 17. Okay, now, I remind you, if you're new here and you're, this is your first Sunday, the book of Revelation is one of the most read and least understood books in the Bible, or it's one of the least read books because it's hard to understand. But we're trying to stay up and see the big themes. So chapter 17, verse 1, John, who is the apostle who receives this vision, gets another vision. And here it is. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with wine and whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Now these opening two verses indicate a picture for John of seeing things like he has seen before that he gives words to and it's a picture that is a symbol of something, not a reality of something. It's a symbol of a reality but it's not a description of the real. It is a symbol called a great prostitute seated on many waters. Now, verse 3 says, and he carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness, and I saw a woman. So I'm going to show you the judgment of the great. I'm trying not to use this word too often here this morning, but we have to get the context, okay? A great harlot or prostitute. And then I got carried away into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, same one, sitting on a scarlet beast. Hmm, where have we seen that? Chapter 13. It's full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads, ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Now, this is the vision John sees And we have to try to identify who is the woman, who is the prostitute, how will this help us understand? There have been other women in the book of Revelation that we have seen. Do you remember? In chapter 12, there was a woman, as the temple of God was opened, and she was clothed in the sun and standing on the moon. And she gave birth to a son, to a male child, who would rule all the nations of the world. Remember that? And that woman was Israel, and the child was the Messiah who would rule the nations, and that is a different woman. And then in chapter 21, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, there is another woman referred to as the bride, the bride of Christ. I want you to have the image of the bride of Christ in your mind while we're looking at this image of a prostitute because what you can see is that if Christ is the bridegroom and his church described in 21 is the bride, there is a competition toward the bridegroom of an unfaithful interloper called the woman, the great 
prostitute and eventually we'll call her Babylon who's at war with the bride of the bridegroom. That's the picture. This is all analogy, all symbolism, all metaphor that's being painted so John can see a symbol of actually what's happening in the heavens in reality with these images. So there is this beautiful woman in chapter 17 verses 1 through 5 and I say that because John is impressed with her. (coughs) He sees her as having arrayed in purple and scarlet adorned with jewels. She's dressed like a queen. She's drunk with the blood of martyrs. She's riding on a beast which is a symbol of the rebellious nation. And the symbolism would have been clear to John's readers in his day that this woman is personifying all of the power of military might riding on a beast to make war and rich with jewels and beautiful garments as being the economic power in John's day of the Roman Empire, I'm certain. Now, a term harlot or prostitute is a metaphor for a false religion, for idolatry, for a deflection from the one true God. Let's summarize chapter 17 in verse 5 on the screen. And she has a name on her forehead in John's picture. And the name written on her is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes of earth's abominations. Whoever this person is in John's vision, this is her name, Babylon the Great. So you have a harlot, you have a woman, you have Babylon. And what you're seeing is John portray in now five and soon six and seven verses that there's something about this woman that is not normal. John is using vivid language And it's meant to make us a little bit uneasy, and it does, doesn't it? It's weird. It is an image that should cause us to respond in a certain way because what this woman is in wealth and power and beauty is also somewhat grotesque. The underbelly of Babylon is really disgusting. And Babylon is like any city that is against God and seeking self-indulgence, idolatry, immorality, power, violence, self-sufficiency. This picture of this woman who is called Babylon the Great is an unfaithful person, nation power, city, a spiritual adulterer against God and luring others in to participate in it. John is describing this Babylon. Now, some people think he's talking about a city in Iraq, like the original Babylon. Other people think he's talking about code for when he's talking to his readers, the seven churches, and he said, there's a great Babylon. They would have all thought, oh yeah, the great Babylon, that's Rome. That's the Roman Empire. And, and the Caesars and their power. And some people think that when John says this, because of this very verse, he's talking about a city 
that sets itself up in opposition to God or a nation that sets itself up to op- in opposition to God in any era between the first and second coming of Christ. Babylon is the governing power of the world that is marked by being unfaithful to God and therefore a harlot, by being violent, drinking the blood of the martyrs, and being wealthy and in love with riches as described most fully in chapter 18. You'll see in verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with blood of the saints, and the angel said, why do you marvel? I'll show you the mystery of the woman and the beast (coughs) with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Now listen, that phrase in in verse 5, the mother of all prostitutes and the mother of all the abominations, I think is talking about either a real city or more likely the system of governance in any empire in the world. And here's why. When you look at chapter 18, just look over at chapter 18 in your Bible. Do you see how it's written differently than chapter 17 in literary style on the page? Do most of your Bibles show that? So when you look at chapter 18, the reason it's in a different sort of font or layout is because it's predominantly quoting, reciting Old Testament references. We've said again and again that one of the things that helps in the book of Revelation is our knowledge of the Old Testament. So when you get to chapter 18, these two chapters go together. There is Babylon and Babylon's fall, and chapter 18 tells the, another poetic story of the fall of Babylon, how people feel about it. But when you look at chapter 18, all, most all of 18 is reciting Old Testament references and making those Old Testament references apply to Babylon. Now, what are they? There are three dominant references in chapter 18 to the Babylon that John's talking about in chapter 17. And it is, anybody still with me? It is three. Isaiah is cited in chapter 18 again and again to refer to Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar was a part of. So Isaiah judges Babylon in Isaiah prophetic word and it's taken up here in Revelation chapter 18 by John. And then you have in Jeremiah references in Revelation chapter 18 from Jeremiah reciting the judgment of Tyre And then you have references in chapter 18 that come out of the book of Ezekiel that Ezekiel wrote about God's pronouncement of judgment on the city of Edom. I get it if this is flying by you, but let me just put it to you this way. In the Old Testament, God made pronouncements of judgment on wicked cities called Babylon and Iraq, the real city that Nebuchadnezzar was a part of, and Tyre, (coughs) excuse me, near Nineveh, and Edom, and each of those cities were wicked, violent, idolatrous cities, and the Old Testament pronounces judgments on them. 
Well, when you get to chapter 18, you have all the language of those former cities governing empires that are saturated in the book of, of Revelation chapter 18. All that to say, I think it's probable that when chapter 17 talks about a woman, a prostitute, a great Babylon, a source of every abomination, he's talking about the great empires of the world. In his day, it would have been Rome. In our day, it could be Moscow. Beijing, Washington, D.C. Where do the empires of this world act like self-indulgent, wealthy, satiated nations who are adulterous to the one true God, idolatrous for other things, self-sufficient in their military might and reject the one true God. What are the kingdoms of this world that act like Babylon? This is the point of chapter 17 that there probably are many of them. The sins of Babylon, I'll give them to you quickly, is an arrogance of military invincibility promoting its own grandeur which truly only belongs to God. Have you ever seen military parades in which a nation demonstrates its power in a grand parade of its invincibility without regard to God? That was Babylon here. Secondly, immorality of sexual passion and other idolatries. A nation that sort of becomes decayed and uh, decadent in its sexual life and conduct is a Babylon. It is a nation governing sociological power that is archetypal in the way it stands against God and rebels. Economic lavishness and self-sufficiency. When you read chapter 18, you'll see again and again that when Babylon falls, it's experiencing this tremendous loss of economic power, of economic luxury that often is experienced by exploiting the poor and exploiting even human trafficked slaves. It is amazing. Can you imagine living in a world where there are still human trafficked slaves who are exploited for the prosperity of a small group of people? Hello. This is the sins of Babylon. And then there is in Babylon a compelling pressure for everyone to assimilate to the values of the empire. And there's the false promise of security that if you just go along with the empire, you'll be safe. Excuse me. That, that's the coercion, peer pressure, that you will fall in line with the power of the empire. I think when John is seeing this picture, he's seeing this picture of this political, sociological, military, economic influence in the world, whether it's in a real city or an empire of the world that forces its might and says, I am invincible, I am wealthy, you will comply, 
any sexual activity is good for us, and the only thing that you cannot do is resist the will of the empire or you will be persecuted. And that's the last mark of Babylon, that it persecutes those who stand against. And John's writing to the Christians to say, you need to stand against all of these evil influences. We're running down on time, but you can see in chapter 17 and verse 8, (coughs) there is um, more explanation. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the beast that you saw and about the woman that you saw calls for a mind of wisdom. Verse 9 says, <coughs> and chapter, uh, verse 10 says, there are seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, another has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain a little while. This gets even more complex, seven um, heads and horns and kings and kings to come, And there are some who think that this is John explaining the future sometime way far into the future from where Rome was that is yet to be under the last king who is the Antichrist, and then there'll be many other kings who align with him. That's possible. I think it's also possible that what John is doing is simply describing what is going to happen at the end that these kingdom powers will align together and they will go to war. Babylons will join other Babylons, one kingdom (coughs) against another kingdom. But you'll see in verse 11 in your Bible, um, it will go to destruction. There's one thing I I wanted to mention to you, is that when, when we talk about Babylon, even the original city of Babylon, you, you remember that we were in the book of Daniel earlier in the year, and in Daniel chapter 4, do you remember when King Nebuchadnezzar was standing, walking out on his palace grounds, and he looked out over the palace? Do you remember what he said to himself as he looked out over that? In Daniel chapter 4, on the, on the roof of the royal palace, verse 30, the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? A kind of hubris that denies the reality that there is one God who deserves all allegiance and worship. And Nebuchadnezzar's worship turns in on himself and says, I have done this myself. And that, I think, paints the picture of the way every empire and kingdom goes in the world. It's what happened to Rome. It turned in on itself. It's what's happening to the United States of America right now. It's turning in on itself in moral degradation and corruption, in uh, bankruptcy and debt and I mean, does anybody think it's not possible that the the kingdom falls? It's possible. It's the pattern of every kingdom that it turns in on itself when it becomes like Babylon. I'm all-powerful, invincible, but you're not. I'm wealthy, and I have no needs, but that's not true. I exploit people to get what I want, and that'll come back to you. Sexual perversion is rampant and nothing is off the table. You can do whatever you want and decay happens in a nation. 
And all that's required of the subjects of the kingdom is compliance with the will of the king of Babylon. And if you resist, you will be punished. You see how it happens? And I think what John is saying is that this is the way it's going to be. It's just going to, they're going to be one after another. This is the way kingdoms are going to be until, verse 14 tells us what happens. Verse 14 says, all these empires, they make more war with the lamb and with the followers of the lamb. However it is, if it's in the last days that this is a great alignment of kingdoms at the end of the world, or if it's really what the Apostle John is saying, this is what Rome is like now, it's what every kingdom has been like, Edom and Tyre and Babylon before and every kingdom after is sort of like this. They always make war on the Lamb. They always refuse to keep God's law. They always refuse to bow down and worship. This is, remember we saw over, God will bring judgments, God will bring some judgments, but they refuse to repent, refuse to repent. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. Let's read the rest together. <clears throat> For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, this is a, sort of another glimpse of the certainty of what is going to happen at the end. Now, I, I told you I gra grappled with all week what to explain, what not to explain, what to leave. I'm, I'm going to leave the rest for you to grapple through and give you two things to take away. See this verse? It doesn't matter what happens in any Babylon, whoever it is. If it's a, if it's a, an, uh, a system of false religious in the very end times, could be that. If it's just a picture of what Rome was like and what every kingdom is like, who refuses to bow the knee to God, is always going to be, in some sense, an attack against the Lord and his people. But here's what I want you to take away. You can know for sure Babylon is doomed. Babylon and every iteration of it from the Roman Empire to any iteration of it today to any iteration of whatever the ten kings and seven heads refers to in the kingdoms to come if they haven't already happened, what you know is Babylon the kingdoms of this world are doomed. One little word shall fell him. Almighty fortress is our God. I'm telling you, the, the Babylon is going to be doomed. It's not on the screen. We'll keep that there. But chapter 18, verse 1, you, you roll into the next chapter. <coughs> And John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he carried, called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. She's a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. All the nations have been drunk in the wine of passion of her immorality, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. It's just like a kingdom that turns in on itself with demon activity, immorality, and the love of materialistic wealth. Now, in the rest of chapter 18, you'll see this quick reference, and I, this is what I want you to go away. 
The certainty of the kingdoms of this world are going to be doomed is repeated again in chapter 18 three times. Here's what it says. Chapter 18, verse 9 says, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Chapter 18, verse 7, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. John is saying again, you trust this world, you trust this system, you trust in those who refuse to bow the knee to the lamb who was slain, (laughs) their end is sure. Doom is coming for them. And I just want you to know, as you sit here say, I began the message this way. There's two cities. There's the city of God and the city of Babylon. Which city has your allegiance? To whom will you bow your knee, your heart? To whom will you write the check? Spend the things, the kingdom of this world or the kingdom to come? In whose city are you most at home? The new Jerusalem to come or Boulder? I mean it. It's like the kingdoms of this world are doomed. They're marked by idolatry, immorality, a sense of pride and invincibility, and all those things aren't true. So where are you going to put your hope? Babylon's doomed. There's so much I wanted to say about this. and um, You know, the way God dooms a city, the way God dooms a people and carries out his judgment on a nation or a society or an empire that refuses to acknowledge who God is and is unfaithful to him, God can do it in many ways. John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. So one of the ways God brings his wrath before the end is he sets up a leader who's wicked. And a wicked leader leads the people to experience the judgment of God by the leader's own actions. So you think of some of the actions of bad leaders And you can see what actually happens out of that. In some cases, God's judgment are actually the result of what a wicked leader does to take a nation into war, to bring death or pestilence, disease or sickness, injustice, famine, rebellion. These are all caused by human beings who make really bad decisions And those decisions are allowed by God because he allows wicked rulers to have their way. And that's how a nation can become doomed. You get that, right? It happens in people. In Romans chapter 1, there is a whole process of God allowing a nation or a society or a whole people group to go their own way. And they're simply getting what they're choosing. Here's the way Romans 1 says it. In um, the opening verse of 18, the wrath of God, the judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who 
suppress the truth because men should know that there is a God and God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, (coughs) his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation. They're without excuse. Everybody has enough to worship God, but don't. 21 says, although they knew God, they didn't honor God as God and give them thanks and became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God with the images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. And you can see that the Babylon of Revelation chapter 17 is very parallel to this. It's, a, it's an idolatrous, adulterous, immoral city that rejects God. And so what does God do in his judgment? The next verse is 24 and 26 and 28. <coughs> Parts of those statements. Therefore, God gave them up. He let them go to their hearts of impurity. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. What do you see happening here? The way Paul describes it is very parallel to Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is that a people, a a group say to God, no, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you. And God says, you can have what you want and lets them go. I just want you to know the truth is Babylon is doomed. And secondly, every follower of Jesus Christ needs to make a choice. Babylon deserves no allegiance from a follower of Christ. So in chapter 18, verse 4, we read this. Then I heard a voice of heaven saying, come out of her. Her. Who? The woman the prostitute, Babylon, the city, the empire that's against God. Come out of that, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Fascinating statement. This is for John to tell to the church, the seven churches, and to the seven churches, and to this church in Boulder, Colorado, the voice out of heaven says, you need to be careful to come out of the system of this world that you not take part in her sins because that system is doomed. It rejects God. It's immoral. It's idolatrous. It's not your kingdom. You belong to the slain lamb. The city belongs to the beast. Where's your allegiance? Is that not great? That's the picture. That's the blessing. That's the picture that John is painting for us to have in our own mind (coughs) as we finish. Are there any questions? (laughs) That's the sweep of it. Babylon's doomed. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to make decisions about how you intersect with this kingdom of this world. And if I could just be as personal enough This means how you intersect in the kingdom of Boulder, Colorado. And if a big 
theme in all of this is the luxurious economy. We need to answer the question of how we spend our money and where we spend our money. I really think that's part of it. Of where you see your security. The state is not your hope. A vaccine is not your hope. We now know. Your hope in the most ultimate sense is, is Jesus. And the kingdoms of this world are going to move to selfishness, idolatry, and immorality and turn in on itself and die. But the kingdom of our Lord is forever. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, um, Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not in this world. And we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' last words in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42 said, stay awake. You don't know what day the Lord's coming. You don't want the Lord to come and for you to be so enmeshed in the Babylon of this world that you're indiscernible being a part of the kingdom to come. That's the blessing. And Jesus makes it possible. We'll look more at it next week. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that your kingdom is sure. And we are grateful that you are going to destroy every evil kingdom and you'll just do it with the word of your mouth and you are the Lord. And I pray that if any of us are feeling a little bit too enmeshed in the kingdoms of this world and all of the allegiances to things of this world, Lord, that you just, you just pull us away from it, get our eyes on Jesus, help us to see that Christ is enough for what, what we are today. And Lord, many of us feel the peer pressure of this world to go along, to get along, to, to say less, to be quieter about our faith, to not speak up that Jesus really is the Savior, that judgment is coming, and that it's going to be severe. But I pray that you will give to us a courage that is called for throughout the book of Revelation to be people who stand with the Lamb who was slain. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the victor by the humble work on the cross, we, we stand with you. Strengthen our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.